Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller, and on the show, A Hip Poem by Lucille Clifton. I write a lot about body parts. Uh, she looked at her. What? Body parts? What? Well, the reason for that is because I am thrilled with my body parts, you know. And uh, people say men don't write about body parts that much. Well, they don't have the thrilling body parts that I have. That's why. <laughs> And uh, I'm excited. All the women applaud. Um, And also, I live in a culture where age, uh, where you're supposed to be 18 to 20, and I'm not. I know you guessed that, but it's true. You're supposed to not have gray hair, and I love my hair. It's white, and I think it's wonderful. And you're supposed to be about 125, and I was born wearing more than that. It's frustrating. So I like to celebrate the wonderfulness that I am. And this universal poem is called Homage to My Hips. These hips are big hips. They need space to move around in. They don't fit into little petty places. These hips are free hips. They don't like to be held back. These hips have never been enslaved. They go where they want to go. They do what they want to do. These hips are mighty hips. These hips are magic hips. I have known them to put a spell on a man and to spin him like a top. And the late Lucille Clifton was poet laureate of Maryland and a finalist twice for the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry. And now on Arts Express. standard for our body armor is, will I stand there and shoot myself on the chest? He is a truly operatic character. What is the name of the Richard Davis opera? Um, boom. He shot at it and the damn thing went right through the vest. And not only was it me getting fooled, it was like everybody. <laughs> if you tell anyone, I will kill you. He always seems to escape unscathed. Somebody's gonna die. Three, two, one. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. Why would a man shoot himself in the chest 192 times? And then why would his son start to do the same? In a country that worships guns, explosives, and comic book superheroes, what kind of stories move product? And finally, In a country that professes to be deeply Christian and compassionate, is there a second chance for all of us, even the worst among us? All this and more are explored in a really intriguing documentary called Second Chance. I'm happy to have as our guest today the director of Second Chance, Ramin Barani. Hi, Ramin. Hi. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Ramin, in the opening scene of your film, Second Chance... A man, Richard Davis, loads a gun, spins the barrel, then aims it at his chest and shoots. And then he exclaims, easy as pie, guys. Explain exactly what are we seeing here? Uh, Well, it's a startling image. And no matter how many times I've seen it, I'm always kind of um, taken aback and unsettled by it. Uh, Richard Davis in 1969 was an out-of-work pizzeria owner in Detroit, Michigan. And to restart his life, he invented the modern-day bulletproof vest in his basement. And in order to prove that it worked, he pointed a gun to his chest and shot point-blank into himself. And he survived, and he proved that his his invention worked. And it didn't take long for him to become a multimillionaire, to have most of the police, military, even President Bush wearing his his bulletproof vests. And he filmed all of this. Um, and so that's that's one example of, a, of 192 times that he did that. Wow. Now, Davis um, was sort of what you would call a, a gun nut. And he had very strong beliefs about the natural escalating evolution of weapons and defense among animals and humans, didn't he? Yes. He sees this as the eternal battle uh, between weapons and protection. And he sees himself, and maybe rightfully so, he saw himself as the high point of that for some sliver of time. 
Previously, the everyday flak jacket was uh, very heavy and visible, but Davis came up with the idea that metal was not needed. Yeah, that was the whole point. He felt that police were not wearing their vests because, as you described, they were huge, heavy, bulky. They were outside of the uniform. So most police officers just left them in the car. He invented something that was thin and lightweight so you could wear it under your uniform or under your shirt. And that totally changed the game because suddenly police officers were more apt to put it on, especially when they saw Richard shooting himself and surviving. <laughs> they Right, they believed it. And part, part of that origin story is pretty interesting and, and, and discussed in the film, which is what one of the things that prompted Richard to do this was as a pizzeria owner, he was on a delivery and there was a holdup, he says, and he ended up in a gun battle with three people. And um, he shot these three men. He was shot. And this kind of bloody origin story um, is part of the mythology of Richard Davis. He was even recreated in a History Channel documentary about him, a short clip about him. And in the film, we will come to understand that there's a lot of things about Richard that are not exactly what they seem. And some of it is just myth-making. And that that's, a, I think, one of the big themes in the film. Well, I, you know, I used to read comic books when I was a kid, and every superhero had an origin story, you know, how Spider-Man got his superpowers. And, I mean, Davis was kind of brilliant in, in deliberately crafting his own origin story. And I guess one of the keys to your film is that Davis was not only an inventor, but he was a filmmaker and also a storyteller who was able to tap into the minds of law enforcement and military personnel. How do you think that contributed to his success? I mean, I think it was pretty instrumental. He was a salesman also, right? Uh, these are classic kind of American characters, salesmen, gun enthusiast, um, rags to riches themes. In order to get the best sold, other than traveling the country, meeting police officers, and basically demonstrating the power of his vest by shooting himself, he would also often be escorted by models. He created a magazine called Sex and Violence because he thought that would be appealing to the mostly male police force at that time. And then he created films. So if you were saved by a Richard Davis vest, a second chance vest, he would immediately contact you and invite you to Michigan where they would do a recreation of your shootout with the quote bad guy. And these things were by turns frightening, but also campy. And then there was something a little bit more sinister underneath it, which is if as a police officer, you were shot and saved by the vest, if you executed right there on the spot, the person who shot at you, Richard Davis would reward you with a gun. And this kind of is a, a telling sign for your audience about some of the darker aspects of Richard. He's kind of, you know, he kind of acts this part of a good old boy, but he he gives away some of his uh, more fascistic leanings when he's singing, this land is my land, this land is my land. And then his films uh, feature what he calls uh, ragtag communist hippies killing cops, the UAP, unorganized asshole punks. Yes. Now, what I, I was yes. curious, how, where did he get his film skills from? Where did he learn all this? I, I don't know, but they're not bad. I mean, I, I yeah. think some of the UAP films are, are pretty good for a B-movie. He had a knack for making these films. And, and like any salesman and con man, he, he knows how to use humor. In, in one of the films, he goes to pull out a gun from underneath his body vest, but instead pulls out a pair of undershorts. I mean, it's, yes. a, it's a perfectly yes. timed bit. You can't you kind of can't help smiling, can you? Yeah, I mean, the, the Richard had a, has a charm to him. Um, and the film, despite some of the heavier themes, it's also quite funny. Um, it could not be funny because of Richard and his movie making. You know, and I, and I, I found that intriguing about him. I would tell you, honestly, I, I kind of like Richard. Um, he was very friendly to us. He always had chili and mac and cheese and donuts that he had cooked or made ready for us when we would arrive to do filming. And I, and I think a lot of people were charmed by him, even people he hurt, even people he hurt badly in the movie talk about how still to this day they have feelings for him, positive feelings. And I was intrigued by that, the, the contradictions of Richard Davis. Well, OK, act two, 
Into Davis's life walks a cop named Aaron Westrick. Tell us about him. Aaron Westrick was saved wearing Richard Davis's vest, and um, Richard invited him to work at Second Chance, and soon Aaron had a significant role in the company. They became good friends, although Richard denies this, but they became good friends. There seems to be enough evidence that they did, photographs, images, stories from other people. Um, Richard and his wife were friends with Aaron and his wife. Everything seems to be going great until a problem arises in new vests that they are developing using new materials and new fibers. And it's potentially going to put a lot of people, um, almost 100,000 cops and military at risk. And Richard Davis and the board of Second Chance seem unable to, to deliver a recall. And that leads Aaron to become a whistleblower against his friend and the man who saved his life with a vest. We get hints along the way that uh, Richard Davis is not exactly a moral exemplar. He had kind of a remarkable ability to avoid blame or shift blame when things go wrong. I mean, he kind of reminds me of a certain ex-president. You know, he does remind us of that, of, yeah. of a certain ex-president and, and other leaders of the country and other significant business people in America that seem unable to differentiate between lies and truth. They don't even seem to know the difference. And people who are enamored by them, as we see in the film, people who are enamored by Richard Davis, even the ones he hurt often say they would prefer to believe the myth around him, including the myth of his origin, <laughs> even if it's not true. And it goes to serve as a reminder that illusions are very hard to, to, to allow them to die. Well, his, his ability to just gab his way out of things, like when a, a stray bullet of his hits a woman, he tries to get a young delinquent kid to take the rap for him. And then a, a fireworks display that he's running goes bad, a canister on the ground blowing up, death and woundings, and Davis blames the fireworks company. In China. He blames China. In China. In China. Yes. In his stories, he's either the hero or the victim, but never anything else. Yeah. So how how did these events affect his company? Well, the the whistleblower case did impact the company. And and, um, ultimately, Davis's company had to declare a bankruptcy and go under. Um, These elements reminded me of Arthur Miller's All My Sons, his second Mm. play, his first successful play right before Death of a Salesman. That play has a lot of similar themes, in fact, even storylines of fathers and sons and a company and a moral center and soldiers who are dying due to faulty airplane parts. But like like a good Arthur Miller play, it ends in morality and tragedy. This one really ends with just another company coming out of the ashes and making more and more money. And it's as if nothing happened. Um, If you see the film, you will come to learn that a a police officer does die, Um, but it's as if nothing happened. Um, Well, I'm so glad that you brought up All My Sons, because um, this is a movie in some sense about toxic fathers. Yeah, there's a generational story um, indicated in the movie. I've never met Richard's father. He's passed away now, but Richard's father was on Iwo Jima um, during the famous and, and deadly battle there in World War II. And this is something that, that is lurking very, very heavy in Richard's mind and, and in his soul. He sits underneath a, a painting of Iwo Jima every day in his home. That's where we have filmed him in his cabin. And um, there's some strange footage in the film as this family had some interesting traditions. There's footage in the film of, of Richard's father shooting him point blank with a rifle on a boat over and over and over again into Richard's vest. Richard's unable to even pull the rifle away from him. So you, you really sense that the father must have had some trauma from the war. And then later, Richard is now pointing the gun at his own son to shoot his son in a vest. And he finds himself struggling if, if he can or cannot do it. And But this was the strange tradition in the family. So Westwick wears a wire to get the goods on Davis. And... Uh... Somehow, even though he does pay a fine, Davis doesn't really pay, pay too much of a of a price, at least not in prison. That's right. Yeah. I mean, George Bush was wearing one of his defective vests. I yes. mean, how, how did he get away with it? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, 
that that's what happened. And in fact, other people in the company got golden parachutes. Um, and, and as you see in the film, landed by mansions by the lake there in Michigan. I mean, this is that, that, that's a separate theme that we just hint at, but it's a it's a known yeah. theme. And you know, yeah. if you have money, the the scales of justice can be very different if you don't than if you don't have the money. I thought one of the interesting things about Davis, he is such a great storyteller, but the guy lies about stuff even he, that he doesn't even need to lie about, like what happened to the the man who originally shot Aaron Westrick. But uh, you you found out some interesting <laughs> fabrications that uh, he told you straight on. Now, after his supposed origin story, two of his pizza stores burned down. And some people whispered that he did it for the insurance money, but he absolutely denied that. He denied that he had any insurance. Tell me what what you discovered. Well, of course, he did have the insurance and we had the documents, but he still, even when I asked him about it a second time, hoping that he would maybe just tell me why he did it, it just he continues to deny that it had ever happened that way. So again, just a, a wall of cognitive dissonance there. And then in his origin story, you found out that there was absolutely no record of any such thing ever happening. In this That's time. right. Yeah. Yeah. And there was a full um, investigation by the Detroit press and no one could find any any record or any proof that this incident had ever happened. We tried to find the three people involved, but unfortunately, none of them are alive at this time. Yeah. Well, one of the great things about this film, and I, I think it really made the film is your epilogue and uh sometimes the good guys get second chances too and you've got a very uh satisfying coda that in the end uh westrick and uh another person have a reunion and they both get a second chance and i won't i won't give away that spoiler but it is a very satisfying um aspect of the film is there anything you had to leave out in the film that you wish you could have? Yes, of course. Yes. <laughs> yeah, there's always things you have to leave out. Um, Richard invented another device for um, erectile dysfunction. That <laughs> oh, more, perfect. Um, that's more humorous. On a more kind of deadly side, he invented one of the most deadly bullets that's ever been made. It, and if it penetrated you, it would tear you apart from the inside. In fact, it was so it became so known as a as the most violent bullet that it appears in a issue of the Punisher comic book. I thought it was just so bizarre that the man whose life mission was to save police officers with a bulletproof vest would also create a bullet that could kill them. And then, if ultimately he he discontinued it, he stopped it. But um, it was pretty it was pretty interesting. I, I wish we could have kept it in the film, but it just it didn't seem to work somehow. I'm going to ask you something that really has has been on my mind since I've, I finished watching that film, which is, why do you think Davis and his son cooperated with you? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I told them, I, I never talked to Matt, uh, Richard until I met him. I talked to Matt on the phone and I told Matt that I'm not coming to make a vanity movie about his father, but I also do not want to make a takedown movie. Um, I want to know about him, about his interests, his dreams, his philosophies. But it doesn't mean I'm, I'm not going to ask the hard questions about things like the Zylon case and other, other things that you know have happened in his past. I have to ask those questions. It's sort of remarkable that at the end of the film, you kind of ask Richard, you know, what would he tell his younger self? And it's, it's pretty clear that he hasn't changed one bit over the years. Yeah. <laughs> yes, of course, his, his, what he would tell himself is to carry more bullets and a bigger gun. And also he hopes to live into the future um, through the Immortalist Society. And even then, his dream is to just invent a new kind of body armor that would take the, the, the let's say, the laser beam in the future that would come shooting at you. It would flip this laser beam around and tear apart the, the quote, bad guys. So he's still, even in the future, thinking about body armor and execution. What's the most important thing you learned making this film? I think it was to try to see as many aspects of a person as I could, you know, which is why I'm very hesitant to say anything negative about Matt or I, even I'm hesitant to talk poorly about Richard. I, I, I don't know. I, 
just trying to see all angles of people. Well, thanks so much, Ramin. Thank you. I've been talking with Ramin Barani, director of Second Chance, opening nationwide December 9th. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. And next on Arts Express, in our Corporate Media Watch episode, the New York Times, along with four European corporate media outlets, just penned a letter to the U.S. government calling for the dropping of charges against Julian Assange as a threat to their freedom of the press. This group of editors and publishers, all of whom had worked with Assange, felt the need to publicly criticize his conduct in 2011. But we come together now to express our grave concerns about the continued prosecution of Julian Assange for obtaining and publishing classified materials. This indictment sets a dangerous precedent and threatens to undermine America's First Amendment and the freedom of the press. But wait, this is the very same corporate media neglecting to include in their joint letter any apology for their media participation in orchestrating the incarceration of Assange, along with a new loving meta procession of news anchors mocking Assange on the air. RT's feisty legal and media analyst and broadcaster Lionel blasts the hypocrisy. For decades, governments of the world have tried to shut WikiLeaks down. And today, Julian Assange, the head of WikiLeaks and Draco Malfoy's biological father, <laughs> has finally been arrested. You can tell that living inside the embassy for seven years has taken its toll. Here he is back in 2012. Yeah. Now compare that to today. I mean, <laughs> it's amazing. The guy went in looking like Draco Malfoy, came out looking like Dumbledore. You know what I'm saying? WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange was also arrested in London, where he was dragged out of the Ecuadorian embassy looking like Santa Claus with a manifesto. <laughs> You're all naughty! I have it on my list! Right? Look, look at him. Like, in just a few years, he went from Bond villain to crowd-surfing hobbits. If you listen to this absolutely imprisoned and feckless commentary, just making fun of the way he looks, do you know why he looks like that? Let me tell you, it's called torture. That's why you look like that. And I'd like to see any of those brave journalists see if they could withstand a week of this. This is something which absolutely galls me. Julian Assange, whether you like him or not, whether you care for his personality, is a hero. Something must be happening. Why all of a sudden? What changed? What information are they privy to? What sensibility were they exposed to that made them say, wait a minute, oh, by the way, all collectively, simultaneously, in some kind of a choreographed fashion, they all decided, I think that maybe there's something to be said where he was actually a journalist. I haven't the foggiest, but I will tell you, there should be a follow-up editorial as to how, how just how imprisoned these people were. I, I, I can't believe how these journalists and they do it. The New York Times, high and mighty. And dare I say, if you go back and you read what they said, their actual statements, it doesn't even provide a bill of particulars as to why. It's almost like a, oh, come on, enough's enough. I guess he's a journalist. It was rather lukewarm and, and tepid at best. And coming up next on Arts Express.
And that was a little of Edgar Winter, our next guest on the show. The rock performer has released an unusual new album, Brother Johnny, a collaborative tribute to his late older brother, fellow musician Johnny Winter. Famed as well for producing Three Muddy Waters Grammy Award-winning albums, and who passed away in 2014. Edgar Winter phones in from Texas to talk about that album, Brother Johnny, nominated for an upcoming Grammy as Best Contemporary Blues Album, and how the collaboration that included Ringo Starr came together and why. Here's Edgar Winter. Hello, Prairie. Hello, Edgar Winter, and welcome to our show. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Sounds good. What do you want to convey to listeners with your album, Brother Johnny, that's been nominated for a 2023 Grammy for Best Contemporary Blues Album? Yes. Well, first of all, are you ready to rock and roll? <laughs> and uh, I'm just overwhelmed, overjoyed uh, with the nomination. And I never dreamed that I would ever again have music, uh, you know, on the charts, and uh, I've never particularly cared about fame and fortune, and it's not the award itself that would be meaningful to me, but uh, the recognition, the acknowledgement, and the validation from the music industry and the academy mean everything, Uh, and, uh, you know, my simple aspiration was to just become a better musician and to pass on that love and inspiration to fans of the music yet to come. And that's, uh, it's my hope that that's what the album Brother Johnny will do. So there you have it. Now the album described as a personal tribute from brother to brother is a stunning collective endeavor incorporating the creation of many eminent musicians. What were the challenges of that for you, and also the rewards artistically? Well, the challenges, uh, I was uh, very reluctant to do the album in, uh, you know, to begin with. And, you know, I was devastated after Johnny's passing, and I got, uh, there was a lot of interest uh, it just didn't feel right to me, and it seemed like business people sensing an opportunity uh, uh, to exploit Johnny's name and memory and just just to sell some records, and I wasn't interested in that. Uh, and, it, and it took some years for me to uh, come to the realization that it, it was Johnny's true, loyal, devoted fans that really wanted to see this happen, and it just felt like the universe crying out for it. The challenge for me was uh, I just, I knew it was going to be highly emotional, and uh, I I knew it was going to take uh, a long time. I thought it would take maybe a year. I had, I never, I had no idea it ended up taking three years. Of course, that wouldn't have been the case without the onset of COVID. But, uh, uh, and it was very challenging to finish because of uh, COVID, because in the beginning, like my cardinal rule was that I was going to be there. Every Everything that went on that record, uh, I wanted to be there for, mm. you know, every note, every performance. Yeah. And uh, toward the end, that was no longer possible. But, uh, and, you know, it... Uh, turned out to be just uh, like playing that music proved to be a, a great source of strength and comfort. And mm. I knew it was going to stir up all these childhood memories because it's just the music that I grew up on. It's the music that Johnny and I learned to play together. Uh, and uh, just that tremendous outpouring of love and respect uh, from all the musicians was the reward for me and was just so much more than I than I ever expected and you know a lot of the people on it are longtime friends and a lot of them are people that uh, that I 
first time. And uh, I always had like a sort of a sense of destiny about it to me. Uh, and even though I wasn't sure about making it, uh, I want to thank three people. First of all, uh, my beautiful wife, mm-hmm. Monique, to whom I've been happily and blissfully married for 43 years now. Not bad for rock and rollers. <laughs> and uh, uh, in every respect. Second person being Ross Hogarth, the engineer, mixer, uh, who really became the co-creator of the record. And uh, he had so many great ideas regarding the material and brought uh, many uh, exceptional guest artists into the mix that I never would have thought of. Uh, it just wouldn't be the album it is without Ross. And uh, finally, Bruce Cordo, the president of Cordo Valley Records, wanted to put out the record for all the right reasons. He loved Johnny's music, and he just he wanted to bring that back and uh, felt like uh, he, he just said, you can take as long as you want, uh, get whoever you want to play. Uh, it's totally your mm-hmm. record. And uh, when I heard that, I knew that was really uh, what decided me finally to to do it. And, Mm. uh, you know, at the end of the album, I I just had this beautiful sense of serenity, of of peace, uh, healing, uh, and it was very cathartic. And, uh, you know, it... Probably not the album Johnny would have made, but I think the album he would have wanted me to make for him. Mm. So, uh, you know, it's just a life-altering experience for me and uh, something that changed my life in so many ways Mm. that's possible to describe. And what was the collaboration like with Ringo Starr for you once again? Got this song with my 
Michael McDonald, Ringo Starr, and Joe Walsh. What an interesting array <laughs> of people that you probably wouldn't expect to hear together. And that uh, really kind of exemplifies how the whole album came about. It was just like uh, one idea after another, and it just more or less took on a life of its own through all the people who who played on and contributed to it. And I got to say, I don't listen to my own album. To me, it's sort of the height of self-indulgence. But <laughs> this album has so many great guest performances, it almost doesn't feel like my album. And every time I put it on, it just... Uh, it takes me away, I mean, you know, it, and it's just uh, so unusual. Uh, it brings back all of these memories, and yeah. I hope it'll be that kind of journey for everybody uh, who listens to it. So I know, obviously, the people that have followed Johnny's and my music over the years will love it, but I also wanted it to be a tribute not only to Johnny, but to the blues uh, and to the guitar, you know, you know, tried to make a really great guitar album. The other thing about it is that I wanted to, uh, I didn't want anyone on the record to do anything that they didn't feel passionately about and feel some connection with. So uh, I let the artist pick the songs. Uh, you know, I I had a song list, and you know, uh, but I didn't connect a specific song with a specific artist. I just felt like, uh, nor did I want to make a sound-alike record. I didn't expect anybody to try to sound like or, or emulate uh, Johnny. Uh, I My idea was just uh, to pick the songs and then find great artists, not necessarily the usual suspects, but mm -hmm. an interesting uh, cast of characters, and then get them to do the music uh, to make it their own and do it Okay, thank you so much, Edgar Winter, for calling in, and the best of luck at the Grammys. Well, thank you for helping keep the music alive, and to all our fans out there, we love you all. Uh, it's meant the world to uh, Johnny and I to do what we most love and see you all out there rocking and having a great time. So keep on rocking. <laughs> okay, bye. Bye-bye. This is John Leguizamo, and I want to give a shout out to everybody. Get political. <laughs> Get your political on. This is John Leguizamo. Now with Bro on the Global Television Beat, Arts Express Paris correspondent Professor Dennis Bro on Social Realist TV, escaping the corporate streaming bubble, including, quote, a supposedly slice of life which is instead simply an array of toned Hollywood types masquerading as ordinary. First, some scenes from one of those series up for discussion. The Peripheral, set in a future controlled and altered by technology, channeling secret connections to a dark personal future in an alternate reality. Your skills are being sadly wasted in this den of imbecility. I got things to do. Mama needs tending, the house needs cleaning. I'm done pretending that I can live in a sim. It ain't real. What is it? Cutting edge VR, Flynn. Folks want me to beta test it for a load of money, too. Just lay back, close your eyes. 
Count back from 10. Piloting that body as if it were your own. Turns out if you prick us, we bleed. This is Broke on the Global Television Beat, Breaking Glass. Today's episode, Social Realist TV, Escaping the Corporate Streaming Bubble. North Sea Connection, Savage River, After the Verdict, and True Colors. Corporate streaming TV seems to be engulfed in a never-ending chasing of its own tail as its programming attempts to more frantically flee any form of social reality, even as that reality becomes more desperate for those working and middle-class viewers living it. Digital companies use the programming to simply present the virtual world as an ever-expanding source of the abundance so sorely lacking in the actual lives of workers. Take Amazon's The Peripheral, part working-class southern rural woman's struggle, a la Jennifer Lawrence and Winter's Bone, but the larger part, and the inducement for the series, is that same woman roaming freely through time and space in her online gaming life, a la Westworld, or the much better, because also critical of that dichotomy, Ready Player One. The Peripheral is by the creators of Westworld, and much like the often unwieldy attempts of characters to navigate the multiverse in Phase 4 of the Marvel Universe, amounts to a big-budget, inane leaping from world to world and a failed attempt to leave this one behind. Facebook, now Meta's, own attempt to foster this interior flight from reality, whose exterior equivalent is Elon Musk's SpaceX, which asserts that a lucky few will start over on Mars when Earth is destroyed, Facebook's attempt is failing, with a projected membership of 500,000 reaching instead less than 200,000 and company stock falling 62%, as for many, the $1,500 headgear is too high a cost for a trip to Fantasyland. This fall has featured huge investments in streaming production values, as the competition between these megacorporations accelerates. The largest among them are using their financial heft to not only beat their close competitors, but also to drive other streamers, unable to match the expensive look of these productions, out of the business. Thus, HBO's Throne of the Dragon costs $20 million per episode and $200 million for the season, doubling the cost of its predecessor, Game of Thrones. Amazon's Rings of Power goes its competitor one better at $750 million for season one and $90 million per episode. The silver lining in this race to oblivion is that around the world, both private and public channels, which cannot match the budgets of these series, are perhaps even by default forced to produce series which deal with the actual breakdown of the global system as it affects the lives of its working and middle-class protagonists. The best of the current crop of these series are Irish Public Television's North Sea Connection, And from Australia, the current leader in social realist TV, Australian public television's Savage River and significant others on Paramount+, Australian commercial TV's After the Verdict on Apple TV+, and the Australian Indigenous Network's True Colors streaming on the Sundance channel. The average cost of a single episode on Australian TV is $760,000. So, in a sense, outflanked in the ability to create alternate fantasy worlds, Unable to match Amazon's $90 million and HBO Max's $20 million, these smaller entities are forced to take into account the actual problems facing their lead characters. This is similar in the Hollywood studio era, as everything new is old again, to RKO, the least wealthy of the big five monopoly studios embracing the film noirs of the 1940s in such films as Crossfire, whose subject was anti-Semitism, with the value added being the social content of the screenplays rather than lavish production numbers. North Sea Connection centers on a family fishing business with the oldest daughter, Kira, following in her dead father's footsteps as the captain of a small fishing trawler. Her brother, Aiden, who tells her she cannot any longer make a living as an honest fisher, 
He says, those days are gone and you know it. Instead, in language and flashy appearance that mark him as a representative of the anything-goes neoliberal order, strikes a bargain with a meta-amphetamine dealer to begin bringing that drug into an Ireland that before, as the local cop says, doesn't have a meth problem. Aiden sucks Kira into his scheme, explaining his using his fishing processing plant as a dumping ground for drugs as a business transaction that benefits both of the parties. He later excuses the death of one of the dealer's henchmen on Kira's boat as a work accident. Aiden's money-making frenzy also involves another type of addiction as he gambles on the horses and is late to meet his wife for an adoption interview. Elsewhere, Kira's mother, played by Sinead Cusack, married to a Swede, discovers a criminal past that enables them to buy their house and indicates that for those living off the land to survive, the only path in a globalized world organized against them is the illegal one, a similar theme as that raised in last year's Irish production, A Clean Break. A viewer's post accompanying the show accuses it of wasting national acting talent Cusack's ability in a middling production. The post itself is perhaps the result of the megastreamer's creation of the expectation of financial on-screen bombast, replacing a more human scale in a series that puts front and center its critique of the inhuman values that themselves may emanate from these outsized productions. The trope of the convicted criminal completing their sentence and returning to an unforgiving town has already produced two remarkable series in Sundance's Rectify and Daisy Haggard's Back to Life. And here in the Australian broadcasting company's Savage River, it produces a third. Mickey, 13 Reason Why's Catherine Langford, which this series will turn into a megastar, has supposedly killed her best friend and returns after a five-year jail sentence to a small town where all activity is centered around a sheep slaughterhouse and meatpacking plant. Mickey quickly finds herself in the midst of another murder she is blamed for, and in the latter part of the series, episodes 5 and 6 of 6, she transforms from victim to active detective, hunting the actual murderer. The slimy owner of the meatworks wants to sell the plant to a global enterprise, which he knows will mean job cuts. But when the town reacts, the corporation pulls out because, though they will clearly howl out the enterprise, our brand is community engagement, not community warfare. The female mayoral candidate is opposed by the long-standing mayor who drips corruption from every pore and is in league with the meatworks owner in putting across the sale. The female candidate proposes instead the workers buy the plant, which the owner scoffs at, claiming he could get $4 million from the corporate buyers and these idiots don't have 50 between them. On the personal level, Mickey is courted by both the local high school teacher, the mayor's son, who abandoned her when she went to jail and now comes back around, and an indigenous fellow worker who offers her affection and friendship and who, as part of her challenging the power structure, she warms to. Savage River is one of the year's best series and extremely attuned to the challenges and potential opportunities through collective organization facing the town's workers. After the verdict... As attuned to the fraying middle class as Savage River is to workers, uses a gimmick to introduce a murder mystery that is fairly apparent from the start, but which is only the excuse and not the subject of the series. Four ordinary jurors, all beset in various ways with their own problems, free a wealthy female suspect who they then suspect may have used her class position and ease with power as tools to convince them she's innocent. The jurors then meet after the verdict to investigate whether or not they've made the wrong decision and perhaps been bamboozled by the woman Laura's wealth and position. Clara, a Chinese-Australian and mother of two, negotiating a divorce with a husband who centered the marriage around him, is also underpaid and overworked at her clerical job. Daniel, eminently bribable as a high school teacher a la Breaking Bad, who can't make ends meet as he attempts to provide some kind of life for his teenage daughter. Ollie is a sleazy and, of course, seductive real estate agent who has problems with abandonment, which have kept him alone and isolated. Finally, Margie, a butcher, is in a relationship with an on-call overnight nurse, Trish, who distrusts her ability to be honest. Flawed characters all, but the flaws of each also have everything to do with the middle class under constant pressure to pretend all is well, as the weight of work pressure, debt, and their own family history impinges on them. The relationships each form, Two unlikely romantic couples, but also a male friendship of Ollie with Daniel and a female one with Margie that Ollie claims is a first in his life, are the heart of the series. The hopeful interactions of the group turn this from a despairing Breaking Bad into instead a series about how fellow feeling, as well as the fact that each is somewhat menaced by the ever-threatening wealthy figure of Laura, enables budding class cooperation to bloom in a series where the mystery takes a backseat to the enduring and endearing relationships between these set-upon characters. 
less slick on the same subject as Ozark, and in the end, vastly more hopeful. The trope of the cop coming home, which fuels most Scandinavian crime series, or Scandi Noir, is employed in national indigenous television's True Color to follow an overweight, and we later find out pregnant cop, sent further into Australia's northern territories, the center of Aboriginal life, to discover what has happened to a young girl thrown from a car in mysterious circumstances. The series was co-produced by the makers of another indigenous detective series, Mystery Road. The casting, as in another Australian series, significant others, consisting of various flawed and physically mundane family members in a run-down house, is anything but Hollywood glamorous. Instead, opting for a gritty portrayal of various indigenous retaining their lifestyle and customs as a way of confronting poverty. The true colors of the series are of two varieties. The first is the open racism of the society, as in the opening sequence, Tony, the plainclothes detective, is confronted by a convenience store clerk and who she then follows and tickets. The other meaning of true colors is the constant array of splendid indigenous art, as Tony, back home, visits a group of elderly female artists painting a mural that will be displayed in Paris, reminiscent of a recent exhibition in that city by indigenous artist Sally Gabori, though their white broker, a sister in the tribe, will earn 60% of the profits. Each of these series in their own way counter both the big-budget metaverses of the corporate streamers and the flashy and insincere casting of series such as ABC's Big Sky, a supposedly slice-of-life of Montana, which instead is simply an array of beautiful, toned Hollywood types masquerading as ordinary. There's a huge gap between Ireland and Australia's working middle and indigenous class representations and Hollywood's Montana hunks. This is Bro on the Global Television Beat, Breaking Glass. Thank you, Dennis Bro. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.